This is hell. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. Last week, we spoke with Algernon Austin, the director for Race and Economic Justice at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. We talked with Algernon about the recent Inflation Reduction Act, jobs, guns, crypto, and skyrocketing rents. As we mentioned, we have been very fortunate to have analysts from CEPR on This Is Hell since nearly our beginning way back in 1996. The first member of CEPR to appear on our show was the person who we will be speaking with today, Dean Baker, senior economist, co-director, co-founder of CEPR. When Dean first started appearing on our show way back in the early 2000s, politicians in the media were insisting Social Security was in the midst of an existential crisis with money running out in only the next few years. Instead, Dean saw it as a phony crisis, even writing a book about it, and he was correct. The warnings that were leading both pundits and those in politics to consider audacious plans like privatizing Social Security did not come true, just as Dean was telling us they would not come true. As early as 2003, Dean was on to tell us that there was a housing bubble and it would burst and likely lead to a recession. He even offered a $1,000 reward to anyone who could provide evidence to suggest that his prediction was wrong. Of course, nobody took him up on the offer, but that didn't stop the media from constantly reporting that real estate would keep going up in value with absolutely no end in sight. Only days before the September 2008 crash, talking heads were going on the major networks reassuring everyone that their real estate investments were safe and sound. But what Dean had been telling us would happen for over five years eventually did. Dean returns today to discuss his most recent writing, including structuring the economy to give money to the rich is inflationary. Dean co-founded the Center for Economic and Policy Research with another past guest, Mark Weisbrot. Dean has been credited, including by people like us here on This Is Hell, as one of the first economists to have identified the 2007-2008 United States housing bubble. Dean's areas of research include housing and macroeconomics, intellectual property, Social Security, Medicare, and European labor markets, and we'll be touching on a lot of that today. Dean is the author of several books, including Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer. Dean's blog, Beat the Press, provides commentary on economic reporting. Dean previously worked as a senior economist at the Economic Policy Institute and has also worked as a consultant for the World Bank, the Joint Economic Committee of the U.S. Congress, and the OECD's Trade Union Advisory Council. This is Dean's first appearance on This Is Hell since he was on way back in December of 2017. I was shocked to see that it's been almost five years since Dean's been on the show. Back then, we talked with him about his uh, then-just-posted op-ed at Truthout, Rich People Need Tax Cuts, The Republican Tax Plan. You can currently find his four most recent interviews here on the show by searching on his name, last name, Baker, at thisishell.com. Find all of Dean's writing, including the Beat the Press blog, at cepr.net. And you can follow Dean on Twitter at DeanBaker13, DeanBaker13. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, I got to read an email we got from listener Riley earlier this week. Riley writes, huge fan and Patreon patron for the last couple of years. I'm a teacher desperately trying to enjoy my last week of summer. I live in Milwaukee, and I'm thinking uh, about heading down, coming down for uh, office hours on Wednesday. I have been to Carrie's Lounge once before. I remember having some really amazing Indian food first in the neighborhood. Mainly, I'm wondering what time office hours usually start and if you think it would be doable to make the trek down from Milwaukee in order to prove to myself that I'm still on vacation and to meet the This Is Hell crew. Looking forward to your response, Riley. Riley, yes, by all means, come on down from Milwaukee and join us this evening. As for the first time since February 2020, since before the pandemic began, we are hosting This Is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think. It's finally back. It's taking place where it always does. As Riley mentioned, downstairs at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, at 6 p.m. on Wednesdays starting this week. 
Now, Dan, I know both you and your wife suffered badly from COVID, so my guess is you will not be joining us tonight. Am I correct? I'm a little worried about it. Uh, so, are you going to be showing up? I don't know. I'll ask the I'll ask the wife. Yeah, we, we haven't talked about it. Have somebody yet. make the decision for you because you, you don't want to. I know yeah. that's why I love defaulting to somebody else. Do you have any other plans for the weekend? Uh, no, I, I can't think that I do. Oh, I'm going to babysit my um, niece and nephew. Down oh, really? There in Andersonville. How that's old are they? Uh, they're like uh, just going to be school aged, preschool and kindergarten. Oh, so they're still in the fun age. Exactly. That's very cool. And why don't you tell people about your comic book one more time? Let's plug it one more time. Oh, okay. It's called The 50 Flip Experiment. It's like this strange science fiction uh, fantasy comic book, and uh, it's a different theme every issue, and it's a lot of fun. Check it out at 50flipexperiment.com, or you can get it at Quimby's. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's fantastic. Chicago Comics has it too. No kidding. No, I'm not kidding. We got to get some copies of it so we can have them. Oh, I brought two for you today. Uh, Excellent. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, My plans this weekend are the same plans I will have for every weekend for the rest of the summer, and that is preparing for the This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party happening during summer's final weekend less than a month away on Saturday, September 17th, also downstairs at Carrie's Lounge, where there will be live music and I will host a raffle of This Is Hell related and adjacent prizes. Meanwhile, upstairs outside our studio doors here in in the gallery space, there will be the closing party for the This Is Hell sponsored This Is Art art show happening at the same time. So between now and then, my plans for every weekend are preparing for all of that, confirming musicians, going through all of the stuff listeners have sent for us to raffle off, trying to figure out how to display art sent for the anniversary party, getting a table together of This Is Hell merchandise, getting a poster together, all that stuff you got to do when you're throwing a party. More important than what i got to do between now and our party on September 17th, Saturday, September 17th. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is what everyday food item do you, down-to-earth person that you are, refer to exclusively by some obscure foreign term? <laughs> I think it's an obscure foreign question, if you ask me. Yeah, for real. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. And we do need your support now more than ever, because it turns out paying staff a living wage is admirable, but not so great for our bottom line. So please show your support for This Is Hell and our staff receiving the bare minimum of what can be even uh, considered a living wage by either subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell or by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support to see all the ways you can help out your friends here at this is hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth during this week's moment, another edition of super truth explores the mysterious matter of vanishing money. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell, following our conversation on the economy with Dean Baker. Again, the question from hell is, what everyday food item do you, down-to-earth person that you are, refer to exclusively by some obscure foreign term? What everyday food item do you, down-to-earth person that you are, refer to exclusively by some obscure foreign term. Apparently, this has to do with the Mehmet Oz for Senate campaign in Pennsylvania, and I'm so glad I didn't know that until Sebastian explained that on Monday. Coming up, Dean Baker returns to This Is Hell. We'll also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Jeff Dorchin will be delivering the moment of truth. And we will tell you who we've scheduled to be on next week's show. All of that coming up here on This Is Hell. Your eyewitness to grief. This is 
hell, and when it comes to the way in which the corporate establishment media, both public and commercial, cover the economy, we are all definitely eyewitnesses to grief, as the news can so often, as today's guest argues, turn evidence on its head when it comes to covering the economy. Here to help us have a better understanding of inflation and many other stories about the economy floating around the news and the media. Dean Baker, senior economist, co-director and co-founder of the Center for Economic Policy and Research. He's on to discuss his most recent writing, including a piece that he posted back in July, Structuring the Economy to Give Money to the Rich is Inflationary. Welcome back to This is Hell, Dean. Thanks, Chuck. Great to be back in hell. It's great to hear your voice again, sir. How have you been? I've been doing well. Uh, it been, has been a long time, but uh, yeah, um, I'm now uh, part-time senior economist as opposed to co-director, so that's a change of pace, and I'm living out in Utah rather than uh, D.C., and in fact, actually, we're planning to move soon, so we aren't going to even be in Utah that much longer. I was going to say, I would have never have guessed that you would have ended up living in Utah. That's kind of a, a surprise to me. So where are you moving to? We're going to be moving to Oregon. So uh, Now that sounds like what I would expect from you, Dean. Living in Oregon sounds like a lot better than living in Utah. Utah has a lot of great things. We're in southern Utah near the National Park sign, Grand Canyon, uh, Grand Escalante. It, it's a beautiful area, but it's uh, it, it, there are downsides too. And yeah, the politics are different here. It's interesting. Yeah. Hey, so uh, you, had, uh, you were on, uh, I believe it was on uh, Market Watch, and you were talking about how the media loves the story of the terrible economy. And on the front page of today's New York Times, there's a headline that says, job gains for black workers could reverse in a downturn. How likely is it that there would be a downturn that would have a negative impact on lower wage workers as well as black workers, the people who have been having some benefit when it comes to what has taken place over the last uh, couple of years with the economy? Well, the second part of that question is easier to answer than the first. If there's a downturn, it disproportionately hits black workers, Hispanic workers, people with less education, people with criminal records. And that's something, you know, I and others have tried to get out. We've really been delighted that Jerome Powell, the chair of the Fed, has said that. He's been saying how important it is to get low unemployment, get unemployment low because you're helping people who really need it. And, you know, having that come from a Fed chair means a lot, which is why I was very happy to see Powell reappointed. So, yeah, if we get a downturn, those people are going to be hit hardest. And just to be clear, it's not just that they lose a job. It's that even the ones who are working lose their bargaining power. So as it stands now in a relatively tight labor market, if your boss is a jerk, if it's a dead end job, you have opportunities to try and go somewhere else. And just to be clear, I understand it doesn't turn out and become great. I've had people say, oh, you're telling No, I understand. It's not great. The point is, it's better. Um, but if uh, if we see the unemployment rate go up a lot, we get a serious recession, really bad news for those at the bottom. Now, are we going to see it? There's this lobby, I've been calling them the recession lobby, saying that, oh, my God, inflation's horrible. Powell really has to raise rates through the roof. And he has risen the, raised rates a lot. Um, but the argument is he has to keep going. Uh, Larry Summers is the most prominent proponent of this line, saying we really need to raise the unemployment. Summers has been very explicit. We're going to need an unemployment rate of 5% for five years. We're currently at 3.5%. So that's a big increase. Um, I am doing my best to argue on the other side, not I myself alone. Obviously, there's many other economists, many other people in policy positions who, who agree with me that, uh, that, that the Fed should be more cautious, that they should do a wait and see the argument, the Summers argument, and he says this explicitly, so I'm not putting words in his mouth, is that we're going to be back in the 70s. We're going to be looking at a wage price spiral and whatever inflation is today, it's going to be one or two percentage points higher next year. And we don't crack down then, it'll be one or two or three percentage points higher the year after that. And we're at double digit inflation. And if we don't crack down, eventually we have hyperinflation. So, so the question is just, do we do it now? Do we do it later? My argument, and you know, again, not mine alone, is that we can afford to be a little cautious here. We had very unusual events, meaning a pandemic, worldwide pandemic, that disrupted supply chains, caused prices in a lot of areas to rise. And then of course, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which caused oil prices, other prices to rise, further disrupted supply chains. My argument is we could afford to wait and see. The data show that expectation, and this is always the argument, not my argument, their argument, that people come to expect higher inflation. So they demand higher pay increases, get higher inflation, et cetera, et cetera. 
expectations of inflation do not seem to have risen much. And in fact, in recent months, they've actually fallen some. So my argument is that we could afford to wait and see. So Powell, I would, I, you know, if he calls me up, I would urge him, you know, if he wants to raise a quarter point at the next meeting, I won't go through the roof yelling, but, you know, to, to be cautious, we don't have to keep jacking up rates. The economy looks to be stabilizing. And the last thing on earth we should want to do is have unemployment when it wasn't, we weren't facing the wage price spiral that Larry Summers is talking about. So that, are we going to have a recession? That's very much a political issue right now. And there's a lot of people who really seem to want one. And, you know, I think most of us should, uh, people consider themselves progressive, should be saying, we don't need one. You know, let's see what happens. Inflation looks to be slowing. Uh, let's see what happens. So uh, why do you think that, uh, why, did, why the rush? Why do you think Larry Summers has this rush to get the uh, Fed rate to be higher? I can't read Larry Summers' mind. I mean, he, he was very critical of the uh, Biden uh, stimulus package that came through in, you know, just after he took office February of last year, saying this is going to wreck the economy. We're going to be back in the 70s. And uh, I think a lot of that is he's not, he doesn't want to change that position. But again, I, I, I can't read his mind. But that was that was what he said back when, when the bill passed. And he's basically still saying that. And, you know, in fairness, he, he's been right in the sense that inflation has persisted for much longer than I and, you know, we joked about team transitory, you know, people saying it was transitory. It's persisted for much longer than we had expected. On the other hand, you know, I didn't, and to my knowledge, Larry Summers didn't anticipate the subsequent rounds of COVID, the Delta round, the Omicron round. We didn't anticipate the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I, if you ask me, where would we be right now if, COVID had faded out, which is what I was expecting. I think most of us were expecting back in, in February, March of, uh, of 221. Remember, we were spreading the vaccines, which seemed to be highly effective. The case numbers were falling rapidly. Hospitalizations, deaths, they were all falling rapidly. You recall last summer, uh, Biden had his uh, July 4th independence. We don't have to wear masks. Everything's great. Um, that's what most of us, myself included, thought that was going to be the story where COVID was um, uh, dying out is probably the wrong word, but fading as a major concern. And of course, that turned out not to be the case. Delta came in and whacked us, whacked the whole world, killed lots of people, of course, and you know, obviously big hit to the economy and then the Omicron wave. So we didn't anticipate those things. And to my view, that's the main reason why we've seen high inflate, high and persistent inflation. It does seem to be coming down now again, you know, presuming we don't get another uh, wave of COVID, I expect that to continue. But that's that's why I think that you know inflation has been persisting much longer and much higher than I would have said back in March of 221. So why do you think the expectations of in, uh, for inflation have faded? They they certainly haven't faded when it comes to the way that the media is reporting how inflation is not only here but here to stay. So why do you, what do you, what do you think is driving the expectations that there will not be as much inflation in the future? Well, I guess a lot of this probably follows gas prices. That sounds really stupid. I mean, you know, but I mean, I'm not knocking people. People aren't economists. They have day jobs. But, you know, if you say, oh, what's it, you know, because this is the question on inflation. They're asking people, um, you know, what do you what do you think is going to happen to inflation? They go, well, price of gas fell this week. So uh, probably it's going to be OK. And that's that's what I'm thinking people are doing in forming their expectations. Now, we have two different stories and expectations. One is consumers, and these are surveys done by University of Michigan. New York Fed does one. I suspect there's others, but those are the two most widely cited. The other one is, is looking at investors that you could get an inflation index treasury bond. I can get a five-year, 10-year inflation index bond that will give me a return based on what the inflation rate ends up being. So if the inflation rate ends up being 5%, it gives me a, a real return, whatever that might be, let's say half percent plus the 5% inflation. So we could use that to see what people, what investors' expectations of inflation are. And again, those have not risen very much. And I, I suspect most people acting in the markets, and these are ostensibly sophisticated, I'll just say the people with lots of money, whether they're sophisticated or not, we could leave that as an open question, but people with a lot of money on the line, they're expecting inflation to be relatively moderate over the next five and 10 years. So, you know, I, my guess, you know, obviously I want to say they agree with me, but you know, that, that would seem to be the case that they seem to think that 
inflation's transitory and they're ignoring what the media is telling them. You also said on Marketplace, the major news outlets seem determined to tell everyone how terrible the economy is, even as unemployment is at a 50-year low and workers at the bottom end of the income distribution are seeing wage gains that outstrip inflation. So why do prices at the store seem to negate unemployment at a 50-year low and wages outstripping inflation for those at the bottom end of income distribution when it comes to media coverage and the public's view of the economy? Why does the is, is this unique that the media is doing so much reporting on a, as they call it, a terrible economy? It's unusual, yeah. I mean, I think they've really decided to paint the terrible economy story. And this was fairly early on in the Biden years. They're talking about beef prices going up. And I understand uh, I don't really eat beef, but whatever, you know, beef eaters that, you know, most people do, that, that that's a big expense. Um, it actually had gone up more under Trump, but whatever, you know. Um, but they decided they were going to highlight the bad economic news. So you're seeing, uh, I remember I was watching, I probably shouldn't watch CNN, it raises my blood pressure. Um, but I remember watching CNN and uh, the, their anchor was saying, oh my God, and they're talking about how many people were quitting. We had record rates of quits. And I look at them and go, oh, that means a lot of people feel they can get better jobs. She's going, oh my God, the quit rate hit a, you know, so everything that could be put as good news. And I understand it's a mixed story. If I'm running a business and my workers, that, that, that's a problem. I understand that. But there's clearly a good side to that story that you have a lot of workers in jobs that are bad by most people's reckoning. Obviously, by these workers' reckoning, they're able to quit them. Um, and uh, that's, that's an evidence of a strong economy. But that really has been um, pushed aside. Uh, the 50-year the low unemployment rate, 3.5%. We, we fell down to 3.5% one or two months in 2019. Prior to that, you'd have to go back to, I think it's 1969 to have a 3.5% unemployment rate. So that's really extraordinary. So there's a lot of things that are very good in this economy, and they've just chosen to ignore them. I was mentioning about uh, wages of low-wage workers. So if you look at hotel and restaurant workers, they're Situation. Let's say that their wages have increased by five percentage points more than inflation. They're still doing poorly. So the question is, how is the media trying to portray this? They, you could look at that and say, oh, look at this person. They could barely cover their rent. They can't pay for clothes for their kids for school. I'm not belittling that. That's the reality. But it was worse than that in 2019 when they were saying, oh, it's a good economy. So, you know, just a way to think about this. Roughly 10% of our population is doing really badly. These are people at or below the poverty line. Take the next 10%. They're doing pretty badly too. Now, any day of the week, the media could find however many people they want, because you're talking about 60 million people are doing really badly or pretty badly. You have 60 million people that are in that category. Any day of the week, you could find as many of those people as you want. Do they appear on the front page of the New York Times? Are they featured by CNN? Well, they are now. Were they in 219? No. That's, that is a political choice made by the media. And again, they could have, you know, we're talking about quit rates a moment ago. There's millions of people who quit their job and presumably most of them think they're in better jobs. There's no problem finding those people. They aren't on the front page of the New York Times. So there's been a, a political choice made by, you know, I don't know who in the media exactly, uh, you know, someone maybe could trace this down, but they've decided to hire, highlight the bad news and to a very large extent, a low, ignore a lot of really good news in the current economy. You also mentioned on Marketplace, in keeping with the economy is terrible theme, the Washington Post had a piece a few weeks back telling us that a record number of people report holding two full-time jobs. As the Post article explained, they need to work two full-time jobs to make ends meet because inflation is so bad. You then say on Marketplace itself, it seems, you said this on Marketplace, it seems this story has now migrated, migrated to Marketplace Radio. There are two problems with this story about workers being forced to work two jobs to make ends meet. The first is that wages for workers at the bottom have actually substantially outpaced inflation over the last few years. The other is that a large number of people holding two full-time jobs seems to be evidence of a strong economy, not a weak one. While the data are erratic, the all-time peak in this number measured as a share of the labor force was in 2000 at the top of the late 1990s boom. The number fell in the years following the Great Recession before rising again as the labor market strengthened in the years just before the pandemic. Both the Washington Post and Marketplace Radio have effectively turned reality on its head to tell their terrible economy story 
about a statistic that actually suggests a good economy. To you, what explains how this kind of story can get turned on its head, especially when a quick glimpse of uh, history shows the point being made uh, to be false? How did it go from a metric showing a good economy to being used as a barometer of excessive inflation? Well, to my view, and again, I have no inside knowledge, here, but to my view, the theme that, you know, the Post, the Times, Marketplace Radio, uh, although I think Marketplace Radio has had good, uh, Times is a good piece. They have all had some good pieces, so I don't want to, you know, just totally trash them. There's some good reporters who have done, done some good pieces, but their, their reporting has all been around the theme of bad economy, people hurting, particularly people at the bottom hurting. And they're looking for things that would seem to support that. And, you know, on the face of it, wow, more people are working two two full-time jobs than ever before. That sounds bad to me. Okay, but then take a look at it. Look at the data. Look at how it's changed through time. And when you look at that through time, we we have this data going back to 94. You see that the all-time peak was in 2000, which is what we all think of as kind of the best of times, you know, that was the end of the 90s boom, the unemployment rate was 4%, which at that time was a 30 year low. Um, so we all thought that was a really good economy. And then it falls when we had the Great Recession and then rises, we get the recovery. My guess is they never looked at the historical data. So they just thought, oh, people working two full time jobs, that's really bad. Now, when I look at that data, and I go, well, that seems to increase during good times times. My explanation, and I don't know that this is right, but my explanation for that is they're probably working two full-time jobs rather than three part-time jobs. That's my guess. I mean, and just to be clear, this is a small segment of the workforce. It's about two-tenths of one percent of the workforce. So it's this is not, you know, a very large number, well, a large share. It's a large number because if you have two-tenths of a a uh, percent of a workforce of 160 million people, that's still 300,000 people. But it's, it's, not, it's not a large share of the workforce. And it's not, you know, quite frankly, a statistic, you know, I think many people have looked to. I had, an, I, had to, I just looked at that and I go, that's interesting. And then I looked back and said, oh, and, and checked the data and saw, oh, actually, that increases in good times and it falls in bad times. So, yeah, my best guess is that it's two full-time jobs rather than three part-time jobs. And just so people are clear, what's classified as full-time is more than 34 hours a week. So if you have two restaurant jobs that are each, you know, 34 and a half hours a week, you, you're working two full-time jobs, which I get is a lot. I mean, I won't have to work 68 hours a week at restaurants, but it's not, these aren't 40. I mean, they can be 40, but they, it doesn't mean that they're working two 40-hour weeks. In your piece, Structuring the Economy to Give Money to the Rich is Inflationary, you mentioned the New York Times opinion piece by Brian Stryker, a Democratic strategist who works with many candidates in the Midwest. His essay is titled, uh, I Work for Midwestern Democrats and I Know How to Win Back Voters from the Republican Party, from the GOP. And it describes how he believes Democrats can win back the working class. You mentioned the big problem with Stryker's argument is that it assumes that the working class will somehow benefit from having more manufacturing jobs. This would have been true 20 years ago when non-college educated workers in manufacturing enjoyed a substantial pay premium over workers employed in other sectors. It is no longer true today. Dean, to what degree is the popular debate and discussion around the economy 20 years out of date? And if so, how does that affect the public's understanding of the current economy? Yeah, I think it's very much out of date. And it's really kind of tragic because I, as much as anyone, was arguing against trade policies that cost us millions of manufacturing jobs. These were disasters, you know, so the trade policies pursued by the Clinton administration and to a much lesser extent Bush and um, Obama, but uh, the, the Clinton administration had this policy of opening up trade and manufacturing goods uh, shown most clearly with NAFTA, but then even more importantly, uh, letting China into WTO. And that cost us millions of manufacturing jobs, decimated large chunks of the Midwest. I'm from Chicago originally, went to grad school in Michigan. So this is turf I know. And, you know, cities that had been pretty prosperous, uh, they were devastated by that. And, you know, to my view, I think that's a lot of the Trump story that uh, a lot of people are rightly angry at, you know, the elites who thought this was great policy, globalization, blah, 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 blah. Um, but that the loss of those manufacturing jobs was really terrible. 
Well, one result of the loss of all these manufacturing jobs is that the benefit of those jobs, they're, they're worse jobs to put it simply. So the jobs that remain, workers have taken pay cuts. They're much less unionized. Unionization rates in manufacturing are only trivially higher than the rest of the private sector. They're like 8% as opposed to 6% before they were at 20%. So there's not a big benefit to getting manufacturing jobs as opposed to getting warehouse jobs, getting uh, jobs in transportation, even in restaurants. If they're unionized, if Starbucks workers unionized, they can get decent pay. So, so we've had this focus on getting manufacturing jobs at a point where that's not likely to be a big benefit. And the real unfortunate part is that oftentimes the efforts to get manufacturing jobs are going to mean that we're going to be subsidizing um, people at the high end, in effect. So to take the CHIPS Act as an example, this was all the, the, this uh, bill that was passed, uh, I guess it was this month, might have been back in July, but it, it was a bipartisan bill that has all these subsidies for building uh, semiconductor factories in the United States. And wow, that's good. I mean, I think we should have more uh, subsidies for, for research and uh, semiconductors in plenty of other areas. And we probably should have more diverse sources, whether they're the US, Europe. I mean, as it stands now, we're hugely dependent on Taiwan. And you know, I'm not anxious for a confrontation with China, but yeah, that, that probably is bad if we had a confrontation with China. Anyhow, um, those subsidies basically are going to go to the companies and higher end workers. So we have this story that's very common among uh, economists and the media that, oh, the reason why workers with less education, without college degrees, the reason they're worse off today than they were 40 years ago is technology has benefited those with skills in, in computers and medical technology, whatever it might be, and it works at disadvantage of, say, people doing manual labor. Well, when you have subsidies for the more skilled, more highly educated, no, that's not technology. That's how we structured policy. And then of course, a big part of that is we give them patent monopolies. So we pay for research and then we give the companies patent monopolies and then we go, oh, why do we have inequality? I mean, the example that should be in everyone's mind, uh, we created five Moderna billionaires during the pandemic. Why did they get to be billionaires? Well, the government paid for the research and they gave Moderna control over the technology. And wow, guess what? We had five Moderna billionaires. I guess that was just technology. Uh, you know, I'm being facetious. That's nuts. But that's that's what happened. And that's kind of a, a you know, great example of you know, what our larger policy has been. We subsidize people at the high end, and then we scratch our heads and go, where did inequality come from? You write the fact that we structured our patent rules and pandemic handouts to create five Moderna billionaires and many other very wealthy people at Moderna and other pharmaceutical companies meant that we had people at the top spending more on housing, cars, vacations, and other items that increased demand in the economy, just as it can be inflationary when the government sends people $2,000 checks and they spend it. It can be inflationary when the government transfers hundreds of billions of dollars annually to the people in a position to benefit from the patent monopolies it is granted. But as you were pointing out earlier, people like Larry Summers are focusing on the inflation that they say is caused by $2,000 checks, and they're certainly not uh, focusing on the inflation that is caused by patent monopolies. Can it be determined what has led to uh, inflation to more to inflation more policies that made Moderna billionaires or the distribution of two thousand dollar checks to everybody? Well, to my mind, it's pretty clearly the former. Um, the, the the checks were largely saved, um, and we have the data on that. So so that that didn't create very much inflation. So again, to my view, most of the inflation that we've gotten in the last year and a half or so has been supply side that we had the disruptions associated with the pandemic and then. The, the war, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, as far as the, the Moderna billionaires, I mean, one of the points I, I like to make when I talk about patents, drugs are cheap. I say that and people are, you nuts? Well, they actually are cheap in the sense that they're cheap to manufacture and distribute. It's very rare that you have a drug that would cost, you know, more than a few hundred dollars, maybe at most a thousand dollars, a bit higher to manufacture and distribute. But then you look at what people have to pay, new cancer drugs, many of them over 100,000, some two, 300,000 for a year's treatment. Um, that's because companies have patent monopolies. So if we had a free market here, people like to say, oh, a question of free market or government, let's have a free market. We wouldn't be paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for these drugs. And there's an incredible amount of money. I, I focus on drugs because it's, it's close to home. It's people's life, people's health. And it is a huge amount of money. We'll spend about $520 billion this year on prescription drugs. By comparison, 
um, the military budget's around 800 billion. So this is really big money. That comes to about uh, $3,000, uh, $4,000 for a typical family, an average family. So this is really a huge amount of money. If we snapped our fingers, got rid of all patents and related protections, because there's others, we'd almost certainly be spending less than 100 billion a year. That's where the inflation is. That's, you know, not that alone, because I could talk about semiconductors, talk about software on down the list. But if you want to know why, you know, some people have a lot of money and they're spending it, increasing demand in the economy. Well, the government did that. We gave them monopolies that allowed them to charge high prices. And you have the people who own shares in those companies and the people who work for them, the high-end workers. So mentioning Moderna, you have five billionaires who own a lot of stock. I'm sure there's plenty of people in high, high positions there, you know, they're, they're experienced researchers who probably made tens of millions, hundreds of millions. They're not billionaires, but they're damn rich. And it's all because we funded the research and then gave them control over it. Why give them control over it? Does that help in the distribution or the production of those pharmaceuticals? What's the point of giving them that kind of patent control? at the high end of the income distribution, we don't even have a discussion. So patents didn't used to be that important for prescription drugs. And basically, we can go back to 1980. I pick on Bayh-Dole because we passed the Bayh-Dole Act in 1980. Bipartisan, by the way. is a Democrat, Dole's a Republican. Jimmy Carter was president, signed as a Democratic Congress. But totally bipartisan. Um, but we don't. E it's not even an issue that's discussed. Now, we got a great thing in the, the Inflation Reduction Act where we're talking about controlling prices, and we are thankfully seeing some discussion, just the beginning, but it's just treated as like a fact of nature. And I, I've had these discussions often with economists. I'm not grabbing someone randomly on the street. I had this discussion with economists and just treat it like a fact of nature. Well, if you didn't give out patent monopolies, no one would have incentive. And go, well, we have plenty of people who work for money. Um, that's not an unusual thing in this economy. So we could pay them through different mechanisms. The National Institutes of Health spends $50 billion a year on biomedical research. I realize we would need more if we didn't rely on patent, patent monopoly financing, but we could have more. So, but it's not even a discussion that generally takes place. Again, the, invest, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, that's a first step, but we really need to have a serious debate on this because to my view, it's just absolutely crazy policy. We are speaking with economist Dean Baker of the Center for Economic Policy and Research. You can find his Beat the Press blog at CEPR.net, and you can follow Dean on Twitter at DeanBaker13. Uh, you write that we also transfer tens of billions of dollars upward to CEOs and other top corporate executives through the corrupt corporate governance structure that we have instituted. A recent study surveyed corporate directors and found that the vast majority did not even see it as their job to contain a CEO pay. Instead, they saw their role as supporting top management. So how is the corporate govern governance structure corrupt? How difficult would it be to reform this corporate governance structure? Is there a huge cultural obstacle to reform, or is reform simply the matter of closing a loophole or a few minor loopholes that would have a major impact? Well, let me just be clear on what, what I'm saying here, because I think there's a lot of confusion. It's not just that I don't like that CEOs get 20, 30, 40, 50 million a year. I don't, I'll be honest. But the point is that that's actually not what they're contributing to the company. So there's a lot of people who look at that and go, oh, they pay them too much. We should tell them they can't pay them that too much. What I'm saying is that, yes, they pay them too much, but they're being ripped off. So if you go back 40, 50 years ago, CEOs got paid 20, 30 times the pay of a typical worker. Now they're getting paid two to 300 times the pay of a typical worker. Their productivity for the company has not increased that much. And the reason why this has happened, this is the idea of a corrupt corporate governance structure. The sort of you know classic economic story is that, oh, the boards of directors who represent the shareholders, they're like hawks over the CEO and they're saying, oh, if you aren't worth 20 million, we're not gonna pay you 20 million. Well, in fact, that's not what happens. The boards of directors are largely appointed by the CEO and other top management. They wanna stay there. And the way to stay there isn't to say, hey, couldn't we get a better CEO for half the pay? Or couldn't we give this guy or woman, typically a guy, half the pay and still have them produce as much for the company? They don't raise that question because they want to stay on the board. Why would they ever do that? 
And that's why I thought this survey was just so great. So these, I think at University of Texas, they sent out a survey, or I don't know exactly how they conducted it. They did a survey of, C, uh, of boards of directors, members of boards of directors of major companies. And they found the vast majority didn't even think this was part of their job description. So rather than being like hawks over the CEO and saying, yeah, you better work to get your 20 million, they're saying, what can we do to help you? And so how do you change that? Well, I would like it to make it easier for shareholders to, to cut CEO pay. Shareholders should be allies. The CEOs are ripping them off. It's just like, you know, they should be as angry about the CEOs ripping them off as if they had a union that pushed up their wages by 20% when they weren't increasing their productivity. We all know they'd be very unhappy if the unions did. They should also be, as shareholders, unhappy about the CEOs did. So different mechanisms. The simplest one that I've proposed is currently in the law, this comes from Dodd-Frank financial reform in 2010, there's a say on pay provision that every three years, the company has to send out CEO's pay package for a straight up or down vote. So shareholders say, is it okay? Is it not okay? And if they say it's not okay, there's no consequence. It's just saying you jerks, you paid the CEO too much. Now, the CEOs uh, win that more than 97% of the time because it's you'd have to organize the shareholders. It's hard to do. And why would anyone do it? Because it doesn't have any direct consequence. So what I've said is, okay, how about putting a little meat on this? How about you say that if a SAN pay package goes down, the CEOs don't get their pay. So they're typically getting 150, 250, sometimes over 400,000, very part-time work, maybe 100, 200 hours a year. Good, good work if you can get it. So if you say, okay, you don't, you aren't paying attention to what the CEO gets, you put out a pay package, the shareholders vote it down, you lose your pay. So my guess, and I'd love to see, have the chance to see how it worked out, is that they would suddenly start to take CEO pay very seriously. If you just had one or two or three of those voted down, I think you'd have a lot of directors suddenly go, oh yeah, I guess that is our job. We better look at what the CEOs are getting. And to be clear, why I think this is so important, because I've had some people say, oh, well, it's just, you know, 500 CEOs of the Fortune 500 or 1,000, whatever. Go, no, it's not just the CEO. If the CEO is getting 30 million, the chief financial officer is getting 10, 15 million. You have a whole tier of second echelon offers are getting next to 10 million. The third tier is getting one to 2 million, infects other parts of the economy. So it's common now for a president of a major university to get, you know, one, two, three million dollars a year. This is a big factor in wage inequality. So if we can get the COP to look something like what it did 40 or 50 years ago, if they're getting 3 million, 4 million, 5 million, you would knock down that whole top, say, half percent of the labor market to something I think that'd be much more reasonable and by an old economic theory, um, less at the top means more for everyone else. And that's very good in my view. You write that if we want to help the working class, as you point out that uh, this Democratic strategist named Brian Stryker seems to want to do in his New York Times editorial, rather than just win their votes, we have to pursue policies that reverse upward redistribution, not promise the return of manufacturing jobs that no longer offer a wage premium. So why is upward redistribution, you know, why is it not recognized by the public? More importantly, if this strategist, Brian Stryker, I mean, he should realize that criticizing upward redistribution would undermine Republican Party positions on wealth redistribution, as it might reveal to the voting public that the Republican Party is not against wealth redistribution when it comes to that redistribution being upward to the already wealthy. To you, considering that it would help the working class, who the Democratic Party apparently wants to win back, according to this strategist Brian Stryker, and that it would undermine a Republican Party talking point, why isn't the Democratic Party talking about upward redistribution? Well, this gets to you know very much speculation on my part, but obviously I've had a lot of discussions with people over the years. I think this really hits close to home. So you have a lot of people who consider themselves liberals, progressives, even a lot of people are fairly left, who are pretty comfortable because they have uh, college degrees, advanced degrees, and they think, oh yeah, I get this high salary, but I'd be willing to pay more in taxes. And when you come around to them, you say, no, well, actually the reason why you have a pretty high salary and the person who's working at the McDonald's, the person who's working in a factory doesn't, isn't just because you work hard and you're smart. That may well be true. I don't know, but let's say it is. Um, it's because we rigged the economy so that people like you could do well, whereas people who work at McDonald's, work at the factory, don't. 
I think it hits close to home when you put it at that level. That's been my experience. I just get like this blackout, like, oh, you know, one of the points I've raised, it might have been that piece that our doctors are paid twice as much as doctors in Germany and France, other wealthy countries. Why is that? Our auto workers aren't paid twice as much, they're paid less. So why are doctors, well, we have a lot of protection for doctors. It's almost impossible for even a well-established doctor in Germany, France, they can't just come here and go, oh, look, I, here's my record. I've you know, passed all this. No, we make it very difficult for even very qualified foreign doctors to practice in the United States. So go, okay, why don't we have free trade for doctors the same way we did with cars and steel and apparel and all these other things? And I've raised that with people and they go, oh, well, I like my doctor. Okay, um, but I don't like paying your doctor twice as much as the doctors in Germany and France. Well, you can't have that discussion, you know, because I think, as I say, I think it hits too close to home. That's that's really interesting. Uh, in your recent article, Inflation, Where Are We Now?, you write that uh, stores have mostly managed to restock their inventories. The prices of a number of widely traded commodities had has fallen by more than 50% from peaks hit last October. It is now at roughly the same level it was at before the pandemic. The price of chicken seems to be tumbling. Chicken and egg prices had soared due to an outbreak of avian flu that devastated the country's chicken stock. It seems farmers have largely rebuilt their flocks and now have plenty of chicken to sell. Perhaps most importantly, the price of gas is continuing to fall. Unless there is a sudden surge in gas prices in the last third of August, the consumer price index is likely to show a drop in gas prices for the month of uh, close to uh, 10%. This should mean another month where the uh, increase in the CPI is near zero. If we get some good news on car prices and some of the other items that saw supply chain related run-ups earlier this year, we may see a small price decline in the August CPI. So, Dean, if voters vote with their wallets, what do you think that means for the midterm elections? Will recovering from months of the media reporting of a terrible economy and worsening inflation, cursing, uh, 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 causing all sorts of uh, uh, sacrifices with uh, gas prices still high but dropping and rapid job growth, is any of that, in your opinion, enough to motivate voters to go to the polls during a midterm uh, election, let alone vote Democratic or Republican? Do you think the economy will determine the midterms as so much media speculation said it would only a few months, a few weeks ago? Well, the economy is always going to be important. Um, obviously, there's a lot of other issues. I mean, literally, our democracy is on the line here because we have a lot of people who are committed to ending the democracy and not being facetious at all there. I think you know the story in places like Michigan and Arizona where you have people saying, we're just going to make the election results whatever we feel like, which they don't say in exactly those words, but basically that is what they say. Um, obviously, women's right to control their body. That's very much on the line. So um, so, so these are huge, huge issues that are going to motivate a lot of people. But what I think I'd say is that a bad economy story probably can't override that. So if gas were still over $5 a gallon and people are really hurting, you know, seeing food prices keep rising, um, that could likely override that. But with it seems inflation moderating. I mean, at least for July and August, it sure looks that way. Um, you know, my crystal ball does is kind of foggy going further out. But, you know, if we continue to see moderation of prices, I think that will mean that economy, the economy is at least not a negative factor. And for a lot of people it will be positive, I'm sure. I mean, again, I can't believe that someone who goes, oh, I don't have to work at, at this awful job. Boss is a jerk. I can go across the street and get a better job, higher pay. I can't believe that that's not a good thing in a lot of people's minds. I mean, those people's minds. So I think we're going from the economy being a, a very negative factor two or three months ago being one that's at least neutral and quite likely positive by election day. One last question for you, Dean. We have been speaking with Dean Baker, who is from the Center for Economic and Policy, Economic Policy and Research. You can find his Beat the Press blog at CEPR.net, and you can follow Dean on Twitter at Dean Baker 13. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show for the first time in four and a half years, but still we have a question from hell for you, Dean. The question from hell, as always, is the question we hate to ask. You may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write, due to our trade deals, especially President Clinton's, which cost millions of manufacturing jobs, the sector no longer offers any substantial pay premium over employment in other sectors. You point out that it's actually at 92% of what the average 
average income is. So it's not even the average income within uh, with a manufacturing job. At the most basic level, the average hourly earnings of production and non-supervisory workers in manufacturing is, again, now less than 92% of the average for the private sector as a whole. So can the Democrats win back the working class, as this Democratic strategist Brian Stryker wants to do, apparently in his op-ed piece that was in the New York Times, can they do that by denouncing the economic policies of the Clinton administration, by stepping back from free trade? I think they absolutely have to. I mean, it, you know, own up to your mistakes. I mean, Clinton's, uh, this isn't Bill Clinton's party. It's not Hillary Clinton's party. Um, I think I think owning, saying that was a mistake. I mean, I, I don't have any stake in saying Bill Clinton's a bad guy. That doesn't matter. But you could say he made a mistake because he did. It hurt a lot of people. And I think acknowledging that, I think that would be a really big step saying, yeah, we really screwed tens of millions of workers and their families because we had these trade policies. We can't reverse them. And again, that's the point I, I was trying to make earlier about the strategists. We, we can't reverse them. You know, we could say, okay, we're gonna no longer have free trade with China and Mexico, whatever. That's not gonna reverse. We, we've lost those jobs. The unions aren't there anymore. Um, so, so we can't just reverse them, but at least acknowledging the mistake and that we had policies that really did screw large numbers of working class people, I think that would be a really good first step. And what do you think the likelihood is that that, that would ever happen? You know, it's, uh, you, you do have people who sort of say that, I mean, Bernie Sanders just being the most obvious, but, but I think, uh, I don't think it's impossible. I mean, you know, what, what was neat, there's, there's an MIT economist, you probably have heard of David Auder, he's very prominent. And he's very much a mainstream economist. I'm just saying that as opposed to he's not someone who's off on the left. And he did a lot of very good research showing the devastation that opening up trade to China inflicted on large sections of, of the manufacturing, uh, manufacturing sector, particularly in the Midwest. So it's now we have the data, we have you know, very well-respected economists saying this. So it shouldn't be too much to think that, you know, some of the people in the Democratic Party could just acknowledge a mistake that was made, you know, at this point more than 20 years ago. Um, that would be a good step. Dean, it's a pleasure having you back on the show. It's not going to be four and a half years until the next time you're on. Uh, I'm going to be annoying you in the very near future to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for being back on. I hope that everything is going great with you. Enjoy your move to Oregon and your move out of Utah. Thank you so much for being back on the show. Thanks, Nick. Thanks a lot for having me on. I enjoyed it. All right. Take care. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. And if what you just heard from Dean Baker on inflation, upward redistribution, uh, corruption, if that was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief, or maybe it just made you realize, yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast which features a new monologue from me each and every week, as well as a classic archived interview that we can't, that is not available anywhere else online. But it, our, our, the Patreon podcast streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. And this podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell, where you can become a subscriber to this is hell on Patreon, or you can show your support for completely listener supported. This is hell by just going to this is hell.com and clicking on support. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is what everyday food item do you down to earth person that you are refer to exclusively by some obscure foreign term. Rose O says old fashioned Italian gravy. Mark S says, Melanzani alla parmigiana. It's not my native tongue, Chuck. <laughs> I not noticed. Neil C. says chicken of the fricassee. <laughs> uh, over Twitter way, Brack, uh, uh, Frack O. Frack E. says bourgeoisie. <laughs> Which I like. Left I says mere pois, right. but only because it reminds me of Lucky from Waiting from Godot. Hard to get any more pretentious than that. That is pretty hard to get more pretentious than that. Petre G says, that liquor ain't for me. It's for flambe. <laughs> and finally, hypocrite, hypocrite Reader says, that toast isn't burnt. It's al dente. 
It's pretty funny. Hypocrite reader always comes with the fire. Yes, they do. Yes, they always do. Again, the person with our favorite uh, answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell merchandise you want. You can still send us your or post your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can still tweet it at us. And you can email it to us at thisishell at gmail.com if you'd like to do that. Again, Twitter is at thisishellradio. Facebook is facebook.com slash thisishellradio. And we are going to be announcing the winner shortly uh, after Jeff Dorchin does his moment of truth. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, please do become a subscriber on Patreon. On Thursday's Patreon podcast, it's another This Week in Hell for the second week in a row. It's our semi-regular and becoming increasingly regular installment of what I got out of this week's guests on This Is Hell. Remember, it's definitely not what you got out of it or anybody else did as we all experience things differently. So we all get something different out of the show every week. It's, it's, so it's, it's what your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host got from our talks on the hacked lives of the disabled, the missed opportunity of a nuclear-free world filled with peace, collectively working against climate change, and whatever I got out of speaking with Dean Baker just now on the economy. Also on Patreon this week, we are playing our August 25th, 2007 interview. So from exactly 15 years ago tomorrow, we wanted to see what were we up to 15 years ago while we were speaking with Stephen Vladek, who was the then associate professor of law at the University of Miami, uh, served as executive editor of the Yale Law Journal, was student director of the Balancing Civil Liberties and National Security post-9-11 litigation project. He participated in litigation challenging President Bush's assertion of power after 9-11 to detain individuals without trial. He was also part of the legal team that successfully challenged the Bush administration's use of military trial tribunals at Guantanamo Bay, and he had just written the Los Angeles Times opinion piece, The Lost Padilla Verdict, about the case of Jose Padilla, uh, who had just been formally, or just been found guilty by a federal jury on charges of conspiring to commit murder and fund terrorism. Government officials had earlier claimed Padilla was suspected of planning to build an exploded dirty bomb in the United States, but he was never charged with this crime. He was initially sentenced to 17 years in prison, which was increased on appeal to 21. His lawsuits against the military for allegedly torturing him were rejected by the courts for lack of merit and jurisdictional issues. If you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you also get access to over 200 past Patreon podcasts with each and every one featuring a monologue by me and a classic interview that currently is not available anywhere else online. But you can only hear all of that by subscribing to our Patreon podcast, patreon.com slash thisishell. Coming up, Jeff with the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we will be announcing this winner as well as telling you what's happening on next week's This Is is hell live from hangover country this is hell and dan i know you have hefe on the line one two you know what to do super truth the mysterious matter of vanishing money. Since the beginning of time, money has been known to evaporate into thin air. There's a saying, time is money. It was originally said by managers to their subordinate laborers in order to urge them to work faster. What the manager didn't reveal was that the money he referred to belonged to the owners and shareholders, not to the workers. Their wages remained the same regardless of the speed of their toil. Mathematically speaking, the faster they worked, the lower their real wages, because they accomplished more in the same hour for the same amount of cash. Denial of remuneration to labor for its increased productivity in the latter 20th and early 21st centuries was the most widespread case of disappearing money since the advent of paid labor. Like most mysterious disappearances that negatively affected the living standards and buying power of labor, rather than injuring the wealth accumulation of the ruling, owning, and speculating classes, however, it has never been the subject of a paranormal investigation. This story is not going to change that. Case in point, 
the National Republican Senatorial Committee, or NRSC. It was later renamed the Nuanced Rick Scott Committee, which allowed it to retain the same initials. The name change was counterintuitive since being named after Florida Republican Senator Rick Scott had long been considered a public relations negative. Even Florida Republican Senator Rick Scott was known to agree with that assessment. In 1987, Senator Rick Scott was on his way to becoming a big deal in the movement of private buy-up of health care services. Ten years later, he'd become the CEO of the Hospital Corporation of America, one of the first private hospital companies in the legendary empire known as the United States of America. However, after only four months, he had to resign as CEO of HCA due to a federal investigation into Medicare and Medicaid fraud at the company. The fraud was so fantastically huge that HCA was eventually forced to pay the government $1.7 billion in criminal fines, penalties, civil damages, and other settlements. Many of the fraudulent actions the DOJ found had had to have been signed off on by CEO Rick Scott himself. A lot to accomplish in only four months as CEO. Maybe because he was so accomplished at fraud, the GOP made Rick Scott chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee and allowed him to name it after himself. Whatever the reason, they may have rued that decision. In the highly fraught election cycle of 2022 of the Common Era, the NRSC had raised a respectable $173 million to be used for Republican Senate campaigns. By July of the same year, that money had dwindled to less than $28.4 million, a reduction of about 93% of their so-called war chest. Where had all the vanishing money gone? To quote a story in the Washington Post, the NRSC's chairman, Senator Rick Scott of Florida, has taken heat from fellow Republicans for running ads featuring himself on camera and releasing his own policy agenda. The obvious conclusion was that Rick Scott had used the funds for his own purposes. Given his shady background in the healthcare industry, not to mention his unfortunate resemblance to what scholars believed the then decades deceased Klaus Barbie would have looked like after a month in one of his own Vichy concentration camps, it's easy to see why suspicion would fall on the homely Floridian. But the details painted a more nuanced picture. This is why investigators of the paranormal always look at the details, in case they help explain things by way of painting pictures possessed of lots and lots and lots of nuance. Let us remember that Rick Scott had never been found to have embezzled money from the Hospital Corporation of America. He was not a common thief or even an uncommon thief. The stain on his reputation came from his association with the nuanced crime of fraud. An uncommon amount of fraud. Lots and lots and lots of nuanced fraud. $1.7 billion worth. Billion with a B. To call him a mere fraudster would have been to oversimplify the matter. $1.7 billion worth of nuanced crime is not simple. It's major league. It's top of the heap. It was not just a stain on his reputation. A stain that big was pretty much the entirety of his reputation. And certainly overshadowed anything else he'd done in his life. It also may have explained why the NRSC changed its name, with 93% of its campaign funds devoted to highlighting Rick Scott and his unpopular policies, changing the name the National Republican Senatorial Committee to the nuanced Rick Scott Committee was simply honest. It was almost certainly done to thwart the media's linking them with their chairman's overshadowing reputation as a titan of nuanced fraud. There's no fraud here, they seem to be saying. We are honestly fraudulent. We're named after our famous chairman, like if Communist China had changed its name to Mao Country. So the mystery remained a mystery, as so many remaining mysteries do. Can money simply disappear without a trace? This wouldn't have been the first time. $23 trillion of defense spending went missing in the violent destruction and failed nation-building in Iraq and Afghanistan in the 21st century, and who knows how many trillions had been stolen over the years from the United States working public, not to mention the public at large. But who cares about all that? No one. We're talking about money meant to retain wealthy elite incumbent senatorial seats or turn Republican challengers into wealthy elite United States senators. As vanishing money went, this was vanishing money that really mattered. 
and as a mystery remaining the mystery of vanishing money that mattered, it will remain, until further investigation, a mysterious matter of super truth. And this has been the moment of truth. Good day. Oh, Jeffy, as you know, we're up against the clock this week. Yeah, but who really cares at this point? <laughs> hey, we're only two minutes over for the week so far, so let me wrap it up. Jeffy. All right, good day. Stay beautiful. I'm, oh, I'm going to stay beautiful, yes. <laughs> Take care, Jeffy. <laughs> Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and share with us the rest of our listeners' answers, if there are any more. Well... There aren't any, so I don't know. What Buddha was, uh, what everyday food item to you, down-to-earth person that you are, refer to exclusively by some obscure foreign term? And the answers I liked most were John T. saying anime crackers, which is pretty funny. Fabio L. saying Soylent Green. Braden S. saying or answering Sanja. It's Australian for sandwich. Frack Lou Elmo on Twitter saying bourgeoisie. And the left isn't divided. The center is replying Mirepoix, but only because it reminds me of Lucky from Waiting for a Godot. Hard to get any more pretentious than that. Uh, so, yeah, I guess that would make it uh, that uh, the left isn't divided. The center is, isn't down to earth, but is pretentious. Hmm. Kind of undermines his answer. But the answer that I liked the most this week, the winner of this week's question from hell for answering the question, what everyday food item do you, down-to-earth person that you are, referred to exclusively by some foreign term? Frack Lou Elmo for saying bourgeoisie. He's moved on from eating the poor to the bourgeoisie. My answer to this week's question from hell is I've been racking my brain over this all week. I really don't think I refer to any food with some obscure foreign term, maybe a brat. I do enjoy limpa and patataskorv uh, during Yule board, but that's what those Swedish dishes are called. But generally, I don't have or use obscure terms for any food, proving that I am down to earth. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell, and this week all of your answers were better than mine. Dan, who do we have scheduled to be on the show next week? We have one confirmed guest. It'll be writer, author, and former academic William Derisowitz. Uh, he returns to This Is Hell to talk about his essay, Why I Left Academia, Since You're Wondering, which appears in his collection, The End of Solitude, Selected Essays on Culture and Society. William was on This Is Hell back in August 2015 to discuss his Harper's article, The Neoliberal Arts, How College Sold Its Soul to the Market. He is the recipient of a National Book Critics Circle Award for Excellence in Reviewing and is the New York Times best-selling author of Excellent Sheep, The Death of the Artist, a sobering account of what it's like to be any kind of artist in America today. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers again to this week's question from Hal. Thanks to this week's producer, Sebastian Voper and Dan Hill. Lindsey Gorey will be back soon after recovering from a sore throat this week. Get well, Lindsey. As always, thanks to Alexander Jerry for all of his behind-the-scenes work. Thanks to Jeff for another moment of truth. Ronaldo for this week in Rotten History. Sebastian for another installment of The Past Inside the Present. And to Theron Humiston and Richard Norwood, just because. See you at Office Hours. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>